This is Craig Applegath, and this is the 21st Century Imperative Podcast, the podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st Century Imperative. These are how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? And how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change? Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant to helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? My guest today is Jeff Ranson, the Regional Director of the Canadian Green Building Council for the Greater Toronto Area. For as long as I've known Jeff, going on 10 years now, he has been passionate about exploring and developing transformative policies that improve the environment, people's living conditions, and sustainable economic prosperity. I got a good sense of this passion when I was one of Jeff's external thesis advisors in 2014, when he was working on a very smart and thoughtful Master of Design thesis at OCAD University's Future Foresight and Innovation Program. He was exploring and organizing structure to map out market transformation actions for the reduction of housing sector greenhouse gas emissions at macro state levels, based on real-world prototyping in three Latin American regions. Jeff's subsequent career trajectory has been very much consistent with his desire to transform the status quo through smart and implementable sustainable design policy. After receiving an Honours BA in Business Administration from the Ivy Business School at Western University in 2002, Jeff has held a number of positions including Program Manager of the Clean Air Foundation, a Senior Associate in Sustainability at the Innovolve Group Inc., Manager of Education and Outreach for Sustainable Buildings Canada in Toronto, which is when I first met Jeff, the Executive Directorship of the Toronto 2030 District, Design Review Panel Member at Waterfront Toronto, and now Regional Director for the Greater Toronto Area of the Canadian Green Building Council. Jeff has therefore been very well placed over the past decade to see how much has changed, as well as how little has changed, and to be able to talk about both the challenges and opportunities of meeting the challenges of the 21st century imperative. In our wide-ranging conversation, we talk about opportunities and challenges for policy to drive large-scale change, about whether climate change trumps all other concerns, about how to design for effective urban density, and about his guarded optimism that we still have a fighting chance for meeting the challenges of climate change. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Jeff, thanks so much for making the time to do this podcast today. Why don't we start off by you talking about when your interest in sustainability emerged and how it grew into becoming your career? Yeah, it, you know, that that's an interesting question to me because I'm not sure that I can trace it back to a point of origin. I think growing up as a kid in the late 80s and 90s, I distinctly remember having sort of early earth days in public school and junior high and talking about the ozone layer in abstraction and deforestation in the rainforest in the Amazon. You know, those were sort of very vivid memories that I have, but I didn't really carry that through into my education or formal training. I was involved in art through high school and design amongst other things and had considered going into architecture uh, I discounted engineering because of the math 
and ended up going into business because I thought it provided lots of opportunities. And, and certainly in the late 90s in business school, there was no sustainability. There was no corporate social responsibility in the curriculum. There was one, one course on business ethics, but it was more about your personal ethics and, and, and what you wanted to achieve through your career as opposed to, you know, corporate outcomes. So it was really something that I was really reading about on the side. Um, well, you're enduring your business degree. Yeah. Through, through business school and then keeping this sort of foot in the realm of urbanism and really trying to observe the cities that we live in and the spaces that we occupy and, and things that just didn't seem to make sense. And so if anything, maybe I would position my interest in sustainability as emerging from a place almost of privilege where I didn't have many real problems to worry about, but as sort of an introvert observer, I spent a lot of time just sort of thinking about spaces and, and the way we used our cities and the way we moved around and things that just seemed not to make a lot of sense. And when you lined up um, social issues with issues like climate change, and you started to look at the way we were building and running cities and spaces, you, you know, you started to see these were big systemic problems that needed solving. When I first met you uh, about 10 years ago, I guess, you were heavily involved in the sustainability movement in Toronto. So there wasn't at that time for me any sense that business was a big interest of yours, like starting a business or making money and profit and the whole system of what business people are usually thought to be. That just didn't strike me as being you. You seem very much about policy, understanding how cities work, analysis and so forth. So was there sort of a transition right after business school into that? Like uh, in, business is interesting, but I think I'm more interested in urban policy and let's explore it. Or what, what, was there a segue yeah. happening there? Yeah. So I think I was pretty bad at business school. I was one of those few people in this space that wasn't particularly interested in going into a, a career in finance or, you know, product management for a big consumer packaged goods firm. Um, there was a couple people, a few of us who had more interest in uh, nonprofit management in other sort of areas. And I think uh, I ended up after university, not going down the traditional career path and, and ending up in Toronto and, and working with a friend of mine. And we sort of got roped in by some mutual acquaintances to doing some small business startup, mostly retail and helping people set up businesses, writing business plans, getting financing. Uh, the first project we worked on was a hair salon. And, you know, we went right down to finding the location and ended up project managing the build out of this. So getting into the construction space and, and my same friend and I ended up a few years later opening a pub in London, Ontario. And I did that for a couple of years. And again, it was very community based. We tapped into the local art scene. We had craft beer on tap before craft beer was really a thing. And these were very community oriented spaces, we were really focused on making very good places for people to be that they wanted to come to and, and have these strong communities. And so it, it dovetailed and we worked very hard to make it urban environments, places where people could live when they're not at home and feel very comfortable. And then when, when that sort of ended, I moved back to the city and had a period of strong introspection about what I wanted to do going through a career change and, and, you know, the options were to go back to school. And I was really looking at urban planning at this time to go do a master's in that. But frankly, after a few years of trying to start up some different small businesses, didn't, didn't really have the time 
or the resources to go down that route. So I went around speaking with pretty much everyone I could find in the city uh, who did anything related to sustainability, just to figure out where somebody with business development experience, marketing experience, project management experience had a role because you didn't see those opportunities online. It was, you know, you had to be an environmental engineer or environmental studies grad to focus on policy stuff and just kind of landed with a really interesting sustainability strategy shop. Went in, met with them, and we just started connecting the dots between projects they were working on, people that I had met with and different ideas about, about how things could develop. And they were very interested in building. This is sort of 2007, right, right at the peak of the sustainability movement taking off. So it was very much a case of right place at the right time where businesses were really looking at how to integrate sustainability into their corporate strategy. And uh, there was nobody out there who had a lot of experience and skills in that space. So I, I latched on to one of the few teams that was working in that area. And uh, they just so happened to have a bunch of projects in the building space. From that time on, really, I guess, 2007 on, your world has been about sustainability and policy for sustainability and organization of people and the efforts to reduce climate change uh, causes, et cetera. Yeah, I think for, from 2007 on, I, I came into a world that had a huge appetite for green building. There was a lot of emerging technology. There was a lot of uncertainty about how we build sustainable cities to scale. And that's really where my focus has been on broadly is how do you drive market transformation? How do you connect these people with technical skills and good ideas to the range of uh, you know, market transformation activities, whether it's policy or workforce capacity building or markets, you know, economies and financing. These things all need to happen in unison for these good ideas to take root. And that's really been the thrust of my work over the last sort of 12, 13 years. In that time, I'm curious, what do you think are the most promising policies and strategies for helping us reduce the environmental harm we're causing now? Yeah, that's a big question. But I mean, you, you're you sort of at the nexus right now of policy making and policy implementation at CAGBC. So what do you think? Well, I think it's hard to talk about green building broadly um, without focusing on climate change specifically. And the imperative and some of my internal debates are around does climate change trump all other things right now? And this is where conversations around nuclear start to take root. Or do we just need to accelerate the uptake of electric vehicles just to decarbonize transportation without dealing with some really fundamental issues around land use planning and, and more intractable problems? But what I would say is there are off-the-shelf solutions that are out there. I think the building space where I work is really the sector that is most well positioned to take advantage of the existing technologies and the opportunities in the short term. I think they will also be required to do so for a number of reasons. They tend to be very vulnerable to policy change. They're not trade exposed. You can't pick up your building and move. They're big. The government knows where to find you. You're viewed as wealthy. You're not typically a voter on the commercial side. So the regulation of those sectors are the things that are going to move very quickly and can move very quickly. I think that the bigger challenges and the bigger opportunities are going to be around what we do with our 
naturalized spaces and conversations of rewilding and bringing back nature. Both inside and outside the city. Inside and outside, taking all of the space that we have that's underutilized and undervalued and trying to imbue value to it through ecosystem services. And it will be most complicated in those interstitial zones between urban and rural. You know, how do you start to address that? But if we can start to look at building cities for people and then keeping nature for nature, I think there can be tremendous opportunities to um, both mitigate the impacts that we're having and also to start to restore and build resilience against climate change. What about the, the challenges and barriers? What are the biggest challenges to moving those kind of policies forward? Well, I think vested interests and inertia are, are the biggest things that we have to deal with and that there are ways that we've been doing things for so long that they seem inevitable. They, they seem baked into the model and that there are decisions that were made so long ago that when the outcomes of those decisions become apparent, we've already built entire systems around those decisions that were made. And people's There's lives no to hold are accountable into them. back to yeah. those original decisions. And so, you know, we have to be very cautious about how much disruption we can impose upon people. And I think that's very important. And, and so how fast can you move in certain areas is, is always the concern. But I think that back to how do you start to solve that problem, what the biggest barrier is to even really beginning the conversation is I think in general misinformation and the sort of opacity of information is probably the biggest barrier that we don't really understand our impacts. We don't really understand cause and effect of the decisions that we made, even at a sort of economic perspective. We don't really understand who's paying for what and what the costs are to whom of the decisions that we made. And if you don't have that information, you know, it's hard to have meaningful conversations with people about what the best solutions are. And in fact, now we sort of have this culture of disinformation, which is making it even that much more complicated. So if those are the big challenges, what do you think is the best way or are the best ways to drive large scale change? Because when you're talking about cities, you're talking about large scale change. Yeah. Well, let's maybe try to pull some examples. And, and I think if you have a city where you, you know your impacts are really from two primary sources. You're looking at, at building energy use and you're looking at transportation. And now there's a lot of work that we can do around improving efficiencies and setting different types of policies. You can have fuel efficiency standards and energy performance standards for buildings. And that's going to mitigate a lot of the performance impacts of those different technologies that we use to run our cities. When you start to talk about the bigger systems, which is not, you know, the vehicle you choose to move around in, but, but the distances you choose to move around in, the spaces that you occupy, those are much more challenging conversations to have. And I think this is where much better data starts to drive, um, not necessarily behavior change, but certainly conversations about policy. And so the fundamental disconnect that I see in terms of how we run our cities is how we price everything and how we value what cities do, and that really cities are are really about a collective allocation of resources 
for the betterment of all, right? It's us pooling our money together that says together we can have better stuff than we can afford alone. And so that raises questions then about how much do we all pay and how much do we all receive from that collective system? And those are not technical questions. Those are, you know, those are philosophical, philosophical or political questions. questions, right? And, and, and depending on where you are in the left to right scale as yeah, well. Absolutely. And, and when you look at cities in Canada, the fundamental mechanism we have to generate any revenue is entirely based around property taxes. I mean, there's some user fees and, and there's transfer payments from higher levels of government, but really the only mechanism that you have is property taxes. And property taxes are based on the assessed value of a piece of property. As opposed to use. As opposed to a use or as opposed to, you know, if you think the value of a property, what dictates that, particularly today where, you know, the prices of real estate are, are unwieldy, you know, very expensive and very challenging. There's a disconnect between what the value of a property is and its impact on the city, its burden to service. And so you may have, especially in a city like Toronto, where you have very differing land use patterns and types within the same jurisdiction, you could have two properties, the same value, a million dollar condo downtown, it's 800 square feet in the sky. Then you have the same valued property could be a, a bungalow out in the inner suburbs of Tobacco or Scarborough with 40 feet of frontage. They're going to be paying the same mill rate. They're going to be paying the same amount of taxes but the cost of servicing, of servicing those them. two properties yeah. is radically different. Yeah. And so that's where that equity conversation comes in. The value of those properties has no bearing on the income or capacity to pay of the people who occupy those. That person who lives downtown, are they, are they richer because they live downtown? Well, they both own a million dollar properties. So you can't assume that one's wealthier. Does the person downtown have a car? Are they driving? What kind of travel distance? Are they taking most of their trips by foot? But then just the volume of infrastructure per capita to service these communities is radically different. And so all of that is buried. It's buried in the bills that we pay and the breakdown. It's all aggregated. And so we don't have a real good sense. So if I were to start at a really fundamental level, it would be really helping people understand what it is that they pay and what they receive. And so I'd love to see a tax bill where for your properties, you know, you get an itemized breakdown. It says, this is what you gave us this year. This is what you paid in taxes. These are the, the value of the services that you received at your property. And I expect you would see a significant difference. You know, this is, this is what came out of general revenue. This is what came from other levels of government. Just to start that conversation and to start to address some of those conversations that people have about what they're entitled to with the taxes they pay. So at least as a start, transparency for the real cost of services and value. Yeah, I yeah. think so. I think that that should be the starting point. It's like, what are we all chipping in to get this service? On the same topic of cities, we're both big fans of the importance of urban density for reducing greenhouse gas emissions per capita. The denser the city, the... Um, lower the emissions per capita. However, as Ken Greenberg once quipped, it's not how dense you make a city, it's how you make it dense. What are your thoughts on density as a strategy for reducing per capita greenhouse gas emissions? And how dense can we make cities and still create humane and great places to live? So uh, we, we've had this discussion many times before, <laughs> but I think the listeners would be very interested. Well, well so th this is certainly a topic that I speak to quite a bit when people are asking me about these kind of issues, because I don't think that when we say density, 
it necessarily means height. And I, I start that, I guess, with the challenge that I have. And I haven't been everywhere. I haven't been to Hong Kong. I haven't been to some of the cities that are super tall. And super uh, dense. And super dense. Yeah. You know, I've spent a lot of time in Europe. I've spent a lot of time in Latin America and cities that were really designed before people had cars and before we had advanced construction and have very high levels of density, but have this like sort of Paris or Berlin, Barcelona yeah, and, yeah. and, and places like that. And you, you know, they all seem to end up with a really similar typology, a, a you know, a six story, uh, mid rise, you know, block structure, block. Yeah. yeah full block apartments with courtyards, narrow roads, uh, small blocks with lots of, of permeability throughout retail on the main floor. And so that may bias my, my opinion and about yet how dense things are. They're some of the densest cities in the world. They are. So I guess my first challenge is, and, and I sit on uh, Waterfront Toronto's design review panel and, and am involved in many of these conversations about these sort of mega developments, these multi-tower, very dense urban environments. And in the sales pitch and the early concept stuff, they always show an urban realm that's highly walkable, that has people, you know, shopping and hanging out and just being outside, which is, I think, aspirationally, in a city, what you want. Uh, you want people to be living in the city. I'm not sure that I've ever seen one finished that has delivered on that promise. And I'm not saying it's not possible, I just haven't seen it. And, and the challenge with that, when we start to build super tall, I think there are, are two fundamental issues. The first is that people are only a certain size. And if we're designing for people, and in particular for people walking and walking outside, you know, they are very much constrained by their own physicality. They can only walk so far in so much time. They can only tolerate so much wind. Uh, you know, and they, especially depending on their age, those parameters adjust accordingly. Uh, absolutely. So just taking that typology of a mixed use, you know, retail with apartments above can vary in scale within a certain range. But I mean, obviously it can't be too small for people. You know, that that's logical, but can we make it super big? Does it translate to 60, 80 stories and still work? I'm not sure that it does. The second challenge that you have with the super tall density, of course, then all the servicing that super tall buildings require, the loading docks, the elevator cores, the parking garages, the transit, the garbage collection, all of the things within the building footprint that they require, which in most cases we see taking up ground floor space. And so if the two aspects of the public realm and an urban environment are the road, the place where people live in the public space, and then the private space, the shops, and the kind of intimate spaces that people use, the destinations. In those walkable neighborhoods that we talk about, they have a very familiar typology. You have narrow storefronts that go deep that provide enough space for retailers, but in a block, you know, you're going to get eight, 10, 12 of these little shops along a block. And so you get this real vibrancy and density of different uses and opportunities. And then when you start plopping down these very large buildings, you start eating all the back of house functions. So in the city of Toronto, we preserve frontage, but we don't preserve floor area for these retail uses. And, and So they're not in many cases so usable as a retail very, space. Or they're very, you end up with very wide, very shallow spaces. And you know, who can afford 60 foot of frontage on a main street? You know, it's going to be a bank. 
Um, it's going to be a chain or large format restaurant. So you're kind of depopulating the retail space as you're simultaneously adding huge density to the population who lives there. And that tends to sterilize things. There's just fewer options, less, less variation. There, there are fewer people who can afford those larger floor plate retail spaces and with more frontage. So that's a real challenge unless we're willing to pay to start moving a lot of those services underground, unless those buildings are actually much larger blocks that still maintain the same floor area typology around the perimeter. And I suspect really that's one of the reasons Chicago and New York were successful is the blocks are larger. So those service functions can be a smaller percentage of the overall block. For sure. Yeah. 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 A 40 story building on a lot that's only you know, 100 by 150 is going to be really hard to squeeze everything under the ground floor and have anything left over for that. Uh, yeah, and I think one of the other issues emerging is going to be the impacts of climate change and severe weather conditions mm -hmm. and power outages and so forth. So the six to eight, nine stories in Paris or Barcelona is something you can walk up and down if the elevator is depowered. Absolutely. Whereas and, you can't do that easily in a 20-story building. And I'll raise two other issues, which I think have similar diminishing returns, which is the amount of structure that you need when you start going high has significant impacts to embodied carbon. We're talking about huge steel and concrete structures. So if you could get comparable density with six-story wood frame construction as you could... And masonry on the outside. You know, you, you can start to drive down that embodied carbon yeah. piece significantly. And I think that that just that materiality, um, you know, and the same thing as well is when you have really big buildings, then you need huge transportation infrastructure connecting them all. And again, you know, roads, we don't look often at the embodied impacts of the roads and subways that we build, the tunnels and the sewer pipes and all of that stuff that you start to assemble around the city. But you know, if you want to build a very dense community with a lot of infrastructure, there's going to be a huge embodied carbon burden uh, that's going to take you quite a long time to make up for through energy efficiency. Yeah, so I guess embodied carbon and the impact of uh, future severe weather events should drive policy in future about what cities look like. Mm. And I suspect we'll be heading back towards what a medieval city looked like. Yeah. In terms of very walkable, um, very resilient, don't need power, can walk, water goes up from main pressure, etc. Yeah. And, and, you know, I guess the last dimension of that is affordability. And it's to say, you know, construction costs, um, you know, in the city of Toronto, we're talking a lot about supply side measures about adding density. And the reality is we're looking at $800 a square foot construction costs for high rise residential. You know, you're never really going to get affordability through that unless you have a lot of filtering happening in the marketplace. Um, now, you know, land costs aside and the cost of development lands and the cost of planning and all the permitting are what are really sort of driving people towards super tall buildings. Although land value is related to what can be developed on it. If you say you can only develop 10 stories, the land value will only support 10 stories. Absolutely. Like it won't go above that. Absolutely. Right? It just, you know, you, you take a graph, a three-dimensional graph of land value, it's the graph of the building sizes. Absolutely. And, and this uncertainty around what's going to be developed is driving huge uncertainty around how to price things. So you have a two-story retail building on a main street that planning guidance says they want to have eight story mid-rise, but it's still zoned two stories. And the land owner who's trying to sell 
is speculating that whoever's going to build there is probably going to be able to get 25 stories. And the developer is coming along saying, mm, I might be able to get 40 stories. So, you know, somewhere in there, they're trying to find a price that works for everybody. But it does not really bode well for any economics to deliver the kind of mid-rise communities that we're talking about. One of the big problems in uh, developing climate change, harm reduction, and mitigation strategies is the big problem of fossil fuel systems lock-in. So right now, we know that PV and wind power are both below net parity. In other words, you generate power at below the cost of burning coal to generate electricity. And yet, all of the systems that supply power to our cities, energy to our cities, are locked in through fossil fuels. So how do we get over that hump of embedded locked-in systems to renewable energies? Is there, have you thought about how that might happen? I mean, Vaclav Schmil, the Canadian energy expert, saying in 50 years, uh, that's too long. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I mean, I just heard Mark Jacquard speak, um, mm. who would disagree right. that in most jurisdictions, coal is still the cheapest energy source that we have if you ignore climate change and climate risk. I mean, if you sort of take out the cost of climate change. Just take change, out the externalities. Just, but just that one. I mean, a lot of the other ones, the air quality externalities have been factored in and it's still the cheapest, but it's sort of ignoring climate change. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be pursuing, obviously, these other options. And I think to your point, it is very much about looking at the whole infrastructure around that and that some of it may be about just how do we allocate our, our incentives. If we know we're going to be spending money to fight climate change, are we focused on the measures, like the end measure, like somebody changes their light bulb, we'll give them some money for that work. Or, or if they install PV on the roof, we'll give them some money for doing that work. Or if you buy an electric vehicle, we'll give you some money for buying that electric vehicle. Or do you spend that money instead on building the infrastructure that allows those technologies to compete on a level playing field with those incumbent technologies? And I, I'm sort of inclined, you know, you probably need to do a bit of all of it, but I do think that we under support establishing markets that can stand on their own, you know, and if you're just paying for somebody to do something that otherwise is not in their financial interest, if you ever take those subsidies away, does that behavior continue or does it just die? And that's, that's sort of a, a, to me, a test of whether or not our public spending and our incentives are effective at really, you know, getting us where we need to go. So, I mean, electric vehicles are probably the easiest example because if you don't have charging infrastructure, um, it's a it's huge barrier very, to entry. Right. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I'm not buying one right now. Yeah. So if you were to take all of the money that we're giving to incentivize people to buy EVs, and deploy that to help people, you know, finance EV charging stations or convert gas stations over to electric, would the market then start to adopt the technology even without incentives or reduced incentives or, or you know, other ways to leverage that money a little more effectively? And, and, and so again, a balance between both. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're going to see that with all the technologies. And I don't want to totally throw um, traditional energy systems under the bus because we work quite a bit with gas companies on energy conservation and the work that they've been doing over the years. We being CAGBC. Uh, with the Green Building Councils and other organizations that I've worked with. And the reality is that we have invested huge amounts into infrastructure and the distribution system in particular and the problem with our natural gas distribution system is the fuel that we're putting in it and where that fuel comes from. But it is an asset that if we could figure out how to leverage it, if we could figure out ways to provide 
non-carbon emitting fuels, things like hydrogen into that system, it's there. So we may not want to entirely discount you know, using those assets or, or even some of the organizations who help build those. It's really focus on the fuel and the carbon in the fuel. Yeah, we had Peter Howard on a number of episodes ago, and he's the biologist at Pond Biofuels or Pond Technologies. And that technology will take the CO2 out of gas fire generation, turn it into algae. So you can have an internal system not escaping, or you can then use algae for feed or whatever. Mm -hmm. But you, there are opportunities to take CO2 out of that fossil fuel system. I mean, it's almost political heresy, green yeah. political heresy to say that, but I think we have to be looking at all the opportunities to get to lowering carbon and be a little more um, Catholic about the kind of policies we embrace. Yeah, I think it's a challenge and, and not to give anybody a pass on, on you know, their obligation, but I think we have to look at all the assets and all the resources that are available and distribution systems are expensive to build. Fuel distribution systems have two advantages, one that they're largely already built. The second is that it's also storage infrastructure. So the gas system not only gets you the energy you need, it also stores it very cost effectively compared to building brand new battery capacity. So again, looking at ways to use those tanks that we've already put in the ground, the pipes we've already put in the ground to store carbon free energy, I think is something that we definitely at least have to consider. Yeah. The terrible irony about fossil fuels is it's organic. I mean, it, it comes from green things that right now produce oxygen, you know, put them in the ground in their oil. One of the things that worries me most about what the impacts of climate change will bring is displacement of people around the world as a result of rising sea levels and desertification and so forth. I think cities are going to be impacted by um, people arriving from other places. Any thoughts about what we can do, especially as prosperous Canadians in, in cities that actually are, are underpopulated across Canada, with the exception of Toronto, probably? What do you think about how, what we can do, what we should do? Well, the, I mean, I, I don't think we even need to go internationally. We're starting to see real material cases in Canada largely driven by flooding where people are being displaced. And so the idea of social obligation toward those who are impacted by climate change, you know, hits home in a lot of ways. If somebody's in a floodplain and they can no longer get insurance, their house is now uninsurable, it effectively has no market value. What is society's responsibility to them? Should we be buying their house out at market rate? You know, at a fraction of market rate? Are they tough luck? sorry, you know, you should have known better. Those are really challenging conversations to have, particularly if the scale of those incidents becomes significant enough. You know, if it's one or two houses, we may just say, oh, it's, you know, let's really help them out. But if we're talking about entire communities, these are very, very challenging situations. And it may be established communities in places like Southern Ontario, more likely there may be communities in, you know, the North that are impacted by things like permafrost melt where their infrastructure is collapsing and we have to make literally, real, re, literally uh, you know, and imminently. And we have to have these very difficult conversations and be prepared to provide the support that's required. 
to help these communities make the best decisions um, possible. And if that means relocating people, like doing that in a way that's ethical, that's uh, appropriate, uh, you know, I don't know that any of us are prepared to really um, solve that problem. When you talk about outside the country, then it's a whole added layer of complexity. And Canada has been very welcoming and, and you know, many other countries have been very welcoming. If it's a reality, though, it will need more than just a policy willingness. I mean, it will need a cultural change. I think that migration will always cause tension whether it's perceived scarcity of resources or whether it's just cultural clashes and difference of views and values, those are really hard things to solve in very short periods of time. And the only remedy that I can see to that is bringing people together and actually having policies to bring different communities around the table to give them exposure to one another, to almost programmatically connect people coming to the country, to those who are already there, and work through challenges around that integration with the participants. Just throwing two people in proximity to each other is not sufficient. You're going to have to actually introduce them to one another. Do you think that's something that uh, CAGBC and USGBC will evolve towards? I don't mean the policy specifically for climate refugees, but starting to address not just harm reduction, but uh, adaptation to impacts as well as regeneration. I mean, those are all, like, they, there's the uh, rally scale and so forth. But I mean, those are the kind of conversations that are almost more pertinent right now than can building stock reduce energy use or carbon. I, I think that, you know, we, we sort of have four strategic pillars organizationally. I mean, the first one has really been focused on climate mitigation. You know, the other three now increasingly are around building resilience, health and wellness, and sort of livability. And then the third one is ecosystems, obviously ecosystem preservation, but also uh, rehabilitation. And those are, those are certainly more emerging areas that were not as well developed in addressing, but that's where we see the market going. And so I think that beyond the mitigation and sort of the technocratic, you know, reduce greenhouse gas emissions from building side of things, the challenges that the industry will face are increasingly going to be, are we building livable places? Are we building places that have high quality of life for the occupants of the building, but the broader ecosystem in which that building is a part? So are we, are we supporting biodiversity? These are critical, critical challenges for us to address. And we're not yet that sophisticated in our approach to, to achieving those things. What do you think is missing from the discussion of climate change? Are there any other questions or better questions we should be asking ourselves? I wouldn't say this is missing from the conversation of climate change, but one of the lenses that we use to take action on climate change is really this idea of long tail risk and that so much of the debate around climate change is on models and predictability. And if we can't predict the outcome, why take action? There's uncertainty. And so our reluctance is to take any action if we don't know exactly what the outcome might be. But that's, that's the wrong lens because the reality is that there is uncertainty in such a complex system, but the uncertainty can play out in many different ways. And one of those ways could be catastrophic. And when the order of magnitude of risk is that high, you know, the precautionary principle takes over. 
And one of the biggest things that I sort of emphasize to people when they start getting caught up in the models, the forecasts, pricing everything, have we fully priced everything? It doesn't matter. We need to move so far in one direction that as long as we start walking in that direction, you know, we're going to be doing better than, than if we're not, than if we're not. Yeah. So that to me is the big issue that we really do not understand risk. And there are a few people talking about this and not just understand it, but believe it and put our money behind risk and value risk as a real expenditure. Um, is that an existential thing? Like we, we don't understand it because it's too complex to understand or because it's just not part of typical social and economic discourse? I mean, it's certainly part of the discourse of, of banking. They, they measure risk down to the nanoparticle, but... Yeah, I think there's a lot of bias around risk in terms of the time, the longer, you know, the farther away it is, the bigger the scale, we just yeah. can't perceive it. And so it's really hard to internalize that as being real. When something's been the way that you recognize it for so long... And we tend to discount it the further away it is. What is that called? Hyperbolic discounting, I think. Yeah, so I think that's... The perception side is, is certainly a big part of it. I, th I would say the other part is there's a bit of gambling and there's a bit of people saying, well, you know, maybe this risk is far enough away that I don't have to worry about it. And I personally will, will be much better off and maybe my time would be better spent building my war chest personally, taking care of my kids, you know, being financially self-interested than when everything falls apart. You I'll know, be okay. I'll be better than the next guy. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's obviously cynical, but I do think there's a bit of a gamble there. I think, I think getting people to buy in to a problem that is so sh fundamentally shared. I mean, it does not matter where greenhouse gas emissions come from. I'm starting from. to wonder if this is again, a discussion of community versus individual. Like so much of this is where does the interest of the community lie versus the individual? And it's a philosophical and political debate. Like if you move south of the border of the states, everything shifts towards the individual. It's hard to have a discussion about the government having a valid role in people's lives at all. Here, we're much more open to the government having a role. Germany, way more open to the government having a role. So it, it really is that old debate of individual versus community. A hundred percent. And I, I would maybe say... You know, in one sense, the climate doesn't care about that debate. It's going to do what it does regardless. I don't know that it's an either or, though. I think it's situational. And one of the things that I'm starting to realize, and, and maybe largely driven by the political divides that we seem to be having across society right now, the left-right divides, is there are also urban-rural divides, and they're, they're pretty clear-cut geographically. And the reality is that as I said, you know, the role of cities is really about how do we best leverage our shared resources for collective benefit. I mean, that's really what a city is about. There are people that don't particularly like being in cities and that are not particularly communal. And I think that when you have an urban lens to all policy, and that's the approach you take, you're inevitably going to alienate people. And so maybe what we really need in, in our societies is really two types of policy that are really focused on individualism versus collectivism. And so for those individualists, there should be policy options and, and options for living that really enhance self-reliance and autonomy. Running public buses out to rural locations does not really make sense. Um, you know, even running centralized utilities out to these remote locations really doesn't make sense. 
um, maybe we should really be focusing our policy on how do we get you off the grid? You know, how do we really help you be as independent and self-reliant as possible? And then for those cities, you know, recognizing that if you are in a city, it is a collectivist system. And therefore, those sort of more liberal communal policies dominate. And that's if you want to be part of the city, of, this is how it that's works. something you sort yeah. of accept. And I, and I sort of think the challenge in Canada and most of North America is then going to be, what do you do with the suburbs? What side of the fence are you going to fall on? Because you can't have it both ways. You can't have that level of public service that, that you expect from a city with the low taxes, with people staying out of your business and, and the physical space. Um, it's just too expensive. And, and well, most not, people are not willing to pay for it. It's economically not sustainable. I mean, you can build it, but you can't maintain it just Absolutely. because there's not the tax base. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, I mean, it, they say it's baked in and we're still building communities and it's not just, I don't say it's the developers. I think it's so Although they're working our, within a context of planning guidelines and zoning. For right? sure. And I mean, to take some of the blame off them, I mean, I, I, most developers I know, try to avoid fighting battles with the city. And so they're just, you know, they're asking, tell me just what, tell the rules me what are. you want yeah, and I'll and then build we'll it. figure it out. And so it, it, you know, what frustrates me is when you see a jurisdiction, a city looking at development and saying, you know, this is what we want in terms of public infrastructure. This is, this is the road engineering standards. This is what you have to build in terms of sewers and streetlights. And they ask for this, this bill of goods that the developer builds and they pass on to the homeowners and the cost, but then the city owns. And the reality is that the value of all that infrastructure they just inherited is far more than what the tax base they just permitted can support. So it's the city who's asking for something that they can't pay for. And that's where we get into this... You know, the they challenge. Think they're actually think they're getting an asset, but what they're getting is a long-term cost. 100%. That's way more expensive than yeah. the asset. And itself. so for those first 30 years, when all the property taxes are incremental and new, you know, the city feels great because they increase the tax base. Then all of a sudden they have to start replacing sewers and roads and they realize there's no money. And that's what we're starting to see in a lot of cities in North America now is this sort of infrastructure cycle. You know, this infrastructure deficit cycle that happens once you hit that first end of life that you have to pay for and the replacement costs, you know, you go into Hawk and you start digging into the DCs from new developments, you know, those development charges to pay for the old stuff. I think it's called a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> you said it. So who's missing from the discussion? We just talked about what's missing. Who's missing from the discussion? Are there people who should be playing uh, more important roles? that are currently not participating? Are there people who we should be listening to that we're not paying attention to right now? I think a lot of people are participating. I think that a lot of people are speaking. Maybe a lot of people aren't speaking together with each other. And so everybody's got an agenda. If I were to sort of say within the development space and building cities, the one community that I still don't think is fully represented is probably the public health sector. And really starting to look at all these ideas that we talk about, about building good places for people to live, building resilience. You know, these have material public health benefits and and we're starting to see evidence around those uh, about chronic diseases and where they tend to, um, you know, concentrate. Um, And those, you know, if you think about in an economic context, I mean, provincially in Ontario, 48% of our tax dollars go to health services. So it dwarfs all of our infrastructure spending. It dwarfs our, our energy spending. So, 
if they're not part of the conversation, if they're not sitting there and, and bringing that real evidence-based um, lens to all these decisions that are getting made, then we're missing the point. Who are some of the thinkers on sustainability who you most admire and why? So there's a few people that I'm, I'm following fairly actively. On the environmental economics side, I mentioned Mark Jacquard previously. I like the work that he's putting out because it's not absolutist and it's really looking at, you know, the ranges of policies and saying, you know, any of these can work if you do them properly. It doesn't need to be either or, but you have to do something. And so looking at, you know, not just what is sort of academically the most effective policy, it's also what's the most politically acceptable policy because a policy that gets thrown out <laughs> the first chance that a government, you know, change um, occurs, you know, is not really good policy. So thinking about those different options and, and working those through and really trying to find the right mix of policies to yield the maximum benefit, and I think is really important. You know, one of the people that I probably cite most often around urban development is Charles Marone from Strong Towns and Strong Towns organization. And they're a small nonprofit out of the US that really, I think, cut their teeth looking at these small rust belt industrial towns that, that have been dying across America, um, many of which have these sort of gutted downtown cores, you know, full of uh, surface parking lots where the old buildings were torn down and, and sort of pawn shops and dollar stores and 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 then these big power centers on the edge of town that suck all the life out of the city, but get all the attention, you know, all the support politically as the sort of economic engine. And so they've really been looking at municipal finances from a real fiscal perspective on tax productivity, where they've really been looking at that correlation between land use, tax revenue and expenditure and showing that even in some of these cities that seem to be destitute downtown, um, they're still far more productive and that that's actually what's generating most of the revenue for the cities and that the growth models that cities are pursuing to try to get themselves out of financial trouble is actually just, you know, digging them deeper in the hole. So the outcomes tend to be, you know, very new urbanist in terms of the result of the kind of developments that occur, but the way they get there is not from sort of a, Does he a have a good example? Do you, can you think of a good example? Well, they've done, I mean, his, his, his own hometown, he writes quite a bit about it, but I know they've done uh, a lot of mapping of cities like Lafayette um, and they've worked with a group called Urban 3 that, that looks at tax yield per acre as a metric. So they actually look at the city and break it down into acres and then look at what, what's being generated. And so, you know, you have these very small sites that are paying, you know, small amounts of taxation, but they're, you know, 1500 square feet, take up very little frontage of old urban uh, neighborhoods that have received very little investment in terms of infrastructure. And then you start to map these, these large, uh, you know, retail clusters on the edge of town. And when you disaggregate that, you know, the individual tax bill for one shop, but take that over a land area basis, and then you add in all the infrastructure that's required to support that, you're seeing orders of magnitude of, 20, 30 times the productivity for these little downtown forgotten places. So, you know, if you're a city and you're thinking really the only asset you have is your land area, what's your most productive land and how do you support it? How do you build more of it? The outcome is, is very different from what we've been doing. I'll have to get a link from you because that would be worthwhile putting in the show notes. 
And another, I mean, another really sort of simplistic example that comes out of this sort of thinking, and I think you'll appreciate this because I know you've got, you've got a place up north and you share a road with your neighbors. And so, you know, when I start to look at some of these, these, um, you know, residential developments, you know, it's a public road, you're a cul-de-sac, you've got 10 houses and you look at the quality of the road and what it wants to cost to build. And then it's getting snow clearance year round. And you think about like, what would that cost for you to pay it privately? And so some of the work that they look at is really looking at these private developments, these private neighborhoods where, where the community assumes responsibility for, for maintaining all of the infrastructure. And it's very obvious which is publicly funded and which is privately funded because they often have unpaved roadways, single lane. You know, the cars figure out how to get past each other when the one car twice a day needs to get by. They, whether they're doing snow clearance, you know, up north, you know, that decision, it's like, hey, do you want to be able to access your place Absolutely. this winter? Yeah. And you talk to your 10 neighbors and you go, okay, well, that's going to be, I don't know, a thousand bucks a piece. And, and, and by the way, because clearing the snow will cause snow the frost heaving that's extra because we have to repair the road so yeah. you got to do do you want to do that yeah so that very yeah. local Everyone decision making about, about dollars like, and cents absolutely this, we're responsible yeah. for it yeah. and the more we disconnect what we expect in terms of services from like who's paying for it we end up with these very high expectations jeff what else is interesting you these days so Maybe I'll talk about two big ideas. The first one, which is more of a concern, which is an area that we're really starting to focus on within the industry and organizationally is, is embodied carbon. We know we're, we're now seeing with typical buildings over 50 years, a third of their greenhouse gas emissions comes from that upfront construction and, and the materials. And so if we're sort of looking at a carbon budget and a 30-year runway, over those 30 years, the emissions from embodied are more like half. So we really need to drive those down. We need to, you know, short-term emissions are more important than sort of the long-term emissions in this case. So pushing forward, obviously things like wood construction and timber, I think are really important low carbon materials, but I'm also really starting to look at some of the opportunities to sequester carbon and some of the technologies that are coming out around low carbon concrete we even saw a presentation at the Green Building Festival a while ago talking about creating aggregate out of carbon dioxide just because of the sheer volumes of aggregate that we're currently mining and quarrying and transporting. The volumes are orders of magnitude greater than most other materials that we use. And so if you're trying to offset carbon or pull carbon out of the atmosphere and find a market that's about the size that you need in terms of the volume of CO2. Aggregate and concrete are really some of the key materials where you can start to, to balance that equation. Yeah, because concrete, the production of cement produces so much CO2. Huge amounts, and we use so much of it. I mean, I think after water, it's the number one material we use by volume. So, you know, if, you're, if, if you can start to pull carbon out and use that you know, either embedding it in concrete to make it stronger or to offset the quarried aggregate that you use. I mean, there's huge quantities there. And, and so these technologies are out there and could have significant impacts. And we need to really start to build our literacy around embodied carbon and then really look at some of these technologies. And that sort of leads into the second point, which is that I'm starting to become a bit of a techno-optimist around, around things like climate change, which is, you know, for years we've been talking all about energy conservation. 
on sort of the pragmatic side of things. And we always sort of dismiss those people who are like, technology is going to save us. Because our argument was always that, you know, energy conservation is by far the most cost-effective way to reduce emissions. So let's focus our money on, on conservation. The problem is that it doesn't really capture people's imagination. They don't really get passionate about conservation. And so... It's about being less bad and no one wants to get excited about that. And... and it's, it's known, <laughs> these are known technologies. They're, they're, you know, it's, it's details and little things. It's not new, shiny objects. So I guess that economic rationalism that people tend to have around conservation kind of gets thrown out the window with new technology. And that, you know, if you're working from a perspective that there's only a finite amount of money, and so we need to deploy it as strategically as possible, well, there's one outcome. But we're starting to see that, you know, maybe money isn't all that finite because there are people who get excited about stuff and will throw unreasonable amounts of money at it because they're passionate about it. And maybe that money's coming from other things they would have spent that money on. But if it gets people excited and it, it builds momentum, we're starting to see some of these technologies take off and could have real impact. And so I'm starting to come around to the fact that it's not about the cheapest solution to climate change. It's about the one that people are most willing to invest in and they're most passionate about. And that may be not the most economical. So what are some of the technologies that are getting you excited right now? Well, I think a lot of the sequestration technologies, I think, are significant. Different air capture technologies, I think the biofuels and our alternative fuel stock. There will be breakthroughs in liquid fuels and things like hydrogen, um, you know, I'm not really a huge smart buildings guy, but there's some pretty interesting stuff coming around the data side that I think will start to let us engage with um, much, much smaller, less sophisticated properties that just don't have the resources or manpower to do what, what, what maybe big buildings can do. You know, software is getting to the point where it can solve a lot of those problems. Well, those little next thermometers yeah. carry the kind of computing power that drove the team to the moon, right? 100%. And when they start getting into, you know, good enough energy audits, you know, you don't need some somebody coming through with a clipboard for four hours. You know, the, the software is, you know, giving you pretty accurate recommendations about what you could do with the payback and then, you know, directly connecting you to a supplier and the incentives. You know, this is, you know, stuff that starts to overcome a lot of the barriers. So, I think there's still a huge market for efficiency, and I think it's still the most efficient way to spend scarce resources. But I'm starting to see the passion and the willingness to invest in groundbreaking technology that might provide us some really interesting complementary solutions. It's interesting because I think the best example and one of the first examples of people getting excited about technology was a strategy that Elon Musk used with his Tesla instead of it being a really effective way to use electricity to drive a car, it was, no, how to make the sexiest car possible that was sexier than any gasoline or diesel-powered car. And you wanted it because it was sexy, not because it was electric. 100%. And didn't it have what it started like a gear shift called insane yeah, or a switch and the acceleration would like yeah, there's throw lots you of great, back. In the lots seat. of great YouTube buttons. Yeah, about, you know, like, we're just going to hit this little button here and we can suddenly. Yeah. Know, so that's why people are buying them. I, I, I think that's it. I think, I mean, I think that connecting to people's passion and, and that it's not, you know, it's not focused on, on efficiency and compromise. 
and that, you know, what's the, the absolute minimum that you're going to be satisfied with? Um, you know, it, it's very much about shifting people's perceptions about what might be possible. And then people will make totally irrational economic decisions to do that. And that's fine. I mean, people buy granite countertops today. What's the payback on a granite countertop? It's nothing. You think it's pretty, you know, you know, why do you buy art? Why do you buy the latest iPhone when your old one works fine? You know, these aren't economically rational decisions. They're your choices to make as a consumer. So I think we do need to tap into some of that um, enthusiasm to, you know, to explore and to innovate and to try new things and then harness that in, in, in a positive direction. One of the big challenges right now in Canada, in fact, all of North America, is the economic division between millennials and boomers. And it wasn't planned that way, but it's turning out that millennials just don't have access to housing and jobs the way their parents did. And will have a real impact on how we engage some of these, these climate strategies that we've been talking about, because you, you can't do things if you're just barely surviving. Any thoughts about that generational divide and how we mend it and come to terms with it in a way that gives millennials a chance? Yeah, I'm not, I mean, that's a huge, crazy question to I mean, ask, I'm, not, I'm not quite a I'm millennial. I'm not sure we'll put this in. But, but I, was, you know, I, I, I empathize with millennials because I had a bit of a circuitous path before I got established. And so I'm, I feel like I'm sort You're of... You're in the millennial groove. Yeah, I'm sort of in that, yeah. Even the sort of maybe four years between my school friends who, you know, went straight into, you know, corporate jobs in say, you know, 2002 versus me who, who maybe sort of came back around um, and settled in later uh, in the decade, you know, sort of 2007, 2008, you know, those few years in terms of the ability to afford a home in Toronto has been significant. And, and you see that um, how, you know, they call it the generational lottery uh, or the birth year lottery. It's not even going as far between millennials and, and boomers, there was a real transition point where I think things have become, you know, remarkably unaffordable. But the boomer millennial divide, I mean, I, I think that it's a combination of two things. For millennials, it, it's both just the lack of access to the same opportunity that the boomers had, had at their age um, that I think is significant. I'll add in a third thing. The, the second is that... I think it's also a bit of a sense of betrayal that what you were told growing up isn't true. And so a lot of the lessons, the well-intentioned lessons that the baby boomer generation told their kids, you know, you can be whatever you want. Because they could um, be. You know, you're going to go to school, get a good degree, get a good job. You're going to have a nice house. Like all of the expectations that were baked into the experience of growing up in that kind of environment just are no longer true. And so I think there's a bit of a sense of betrayal fundamentally there. Then there's also this overlying anxiety about the future and the sense that, you know, the baby boomers had the power and the clout and the authority to do a lot of, uh, to prevent climate change to prevent income inequality, but frankly, you know, didn't make those choices. And so that's where the conflict comes from. And then the, the authority, you know, that the boomers are still perceived as being in charge and dismissive. Um, and they have a lot to lose with some of the prospective policy interventions to, to change affordability 
you know, like really, how do you make houses affordable? I mean, you need to lower the price of homes. But well, what in, what person whose entire life savings is tied up in in one asset wants to see it devalued by you know thirty percent, forty percent? I mean, it's that's not that's not an easy situation to be in. So there's a real material conflict, and I don't know that there's an easy solution to that. I mean, my sense is that incumbency tends to win, so the boomers will be insulated from downside risk at the expense, you know, and, and we'll work as hard as we can to uplift the millennials, you know, get them a little more money on the income side so that we don't have to, you know, hit the boomers on the housing <laughs> value side. But I don't, I just don't think we can balance the equation fast enough. Yeah. I think at a very basic level, we're going to have to dis distribute income. We're going to have to, can we talk about basic income? I think basic income is, is a necessity, absolute necessity for balancing inequality. And um, I also think cranking up housing stock is an absolute necessity. I mean, look at what Holland's doing or the Netherlands is they're not doing it because of income inequality. They're saying it, it drives our economy. If we produce, everyone's guaranteed a house there or an apartment and they produce them mm -hmm. and everyone gets one. And Singapore has been doing yeah. the same thing for years. Yeah. And, and government and, builds most of the houses. Yeah. So if you combine that with some sort of guaranteed income, then all of a sudden you may not take something away from the boomers, but you're certainly going to be giving lots of people access to things that they couldn't otherwise have and just redistributing income. I think it's, it's, it, but that's a, a very left wing point of view, but I think it's, the only way we're going to move forward. And we, we won't get buy-in all these big climate change mitigation strategies we want to put forward unless people have a basic um, security, mm -hmm. economic I mean, security. I, I guess, you know, the idea of it being like more of a national dividend, like as a citizen of the country. Andrew Yang's proposing in the States, right? You know, it's, you know changing the language from basic income or as, you know, a, a sort of a, a, you know, a benefit um, you know, an entitlement to a dividend as a shareholder right. in the country. Call it is, a dividend. If you call it basic uh, income, people will freak out. Right. Yeah. That's you know, what's a national dividend? You know, we've so got, you a, do, it's got you a strong call GDP and, and as a citizen, do you get a share? I mean, I think that's, I think that's really important and, and not to discount the complexity of then dealing with the inflationary pressures. Like if the housing market, you know, you start giving everyone money, is there just, you know, runaway inflation on necessities because that's what markets tend to do. So you need, you'd need to counterbalance that with, with, you know, demand side measures and, and, you know, regulatory constraints on, you know, food and housing. But I, I do agree with you that, that one of the biggest long-term challenges is really going to be around if people are 100% reliable on their productive work efforts to generate income and feed themselves, but people's production is no longer valuable because it's those roles have been automated. And, oh, and frankly, uh, yes. our, our That's a huge demand issue. Uh, for produced goods. AI is, and automation and is going to kill employment. More than yeah. the, you know, our ability to consume yeah. it. Like we're now sort of manufactured demand. Like you need stuff that you don't need just because we've got to keep the engines right. going. You know, that's, that, that doesn't work. So. I, I think bare knuckle capitalism is self-defeating because given what's happening with AI and automation, if you automate to become more efficient, which is what the market drives you to, you must do that. I mean, we're seeing the pressures here in terms of design and engineering. That means that you will have fewer people that will have the means to buy your stuff. So if you don't have people to buy your stuff, the whole thing grinds to a halt. Yeah. So you've got to make sure there are people out there that have a life 
and a lifestyle that needs services or things. So they better have access to the resources to do that or you will no longer have capitalism. I think yeah. the, it's not that capitalism is wrong at, in and of itself. It's wrong when it's unfettered and it's the only thing. It's not an engine that's controlled and driving in a direction. The it's other, just released. I mean, the other big system there to question is then the fact that, you know, is monetary policy and is, you know, central banking systems, like is money really scarce? And when you're working with a scarce inventory of money, it's winner takes all. And, and the, you know, that's the sense of when you have a dollar, someone else doesn't have that dollar. If we think about m money differently, which is an agreement of value, you know, that it's not a scarce thing. It's not something we're digging out of the ground, but it's, it's an agreement that something has value. There's a lot more flexibility about, you know, how you deploy that money. And, and you could, instead of collecting taxes to bring in some of that scarce money to pay for stuff, you know, governments could just issue money for things that have value. They could issue it directly to citizens as a dividend without taxation. You know, they could invest in specific projects with public benefit. Not that that doesn't need oversight to ensure that it's not corrupted, but that money could be deployed to things that have a public benefit through a really, you know, rigorous, you know, democratic process. So, yeah, I mean, just even, even that aspect where as a person, you are valued as a member of society and therefore you are entitled to, you know, an annual income that then gets spent, I think is an interesting concept in limiting your value to the scarcity of, you know, of money presents a lot of, you know, really challenging uh, dynamics between, you know, obviously people who, who have earned their money and don't want to give it up because they feel like they've earned it. Um, and then people who, you know, feel like they've never had the fair chance to earn that money. Um, and so again, that's, that's all scarcity thinking. And how do we get past that? Talk a bit about progress. I think both of us in what we do sort of implicitly believe that we can move forward in a positive way, that we can make things better for the community and the individuals in the community. But the notion of progress has really been under assault in the last decade. Um, when you think about Brexit, the rise of the right in Europe, Trump in the States, and the notion of fake news and false science. And that all seems to be very cloudy now. If I think back 10 years ago or 20 years ago, things seemed a lot clearer, even though there were a lot of problems. What, what do you think about this idea of progress? Well, I think you know, practically in terms of what we've seen accomplished technologically, I'm often astounded by how fast things do move. I mean, you know, when I started, I remember conceptual net zero energy buildings and it was science fiction. And in the last year, I think we've certified. All, you know, all of my clients are asking for net zero buildings. Everyone's doing it. <laughs> and we've, we have now have net zero carbon buildings and, you know, certified running with utility bills showing that they're operating at, at net incremental carbon. And that's in just about a decade that that's changed. And so we're accelerating much more quickly than it seems day to day when you're in the trenches and you're being like, why is everything so slow? And we're moving very quickly. On the social side, I think we're at a point of conflict. And I think there are maybe two ways to look at this problem. Is this a rising movement where there has been sort of progressive momentum and this is the pushback? You know, are things changing? Is this this other... The rapid change causing anxiety. 
Yeah, but is this the way forward? Is this a group that, you know, is building a critical mass and a majority that will sort of take over certainly the political landscape, but sort of the social agenda? Or are these sort of the dying last ditch efforts of people trying to preserve a way of life that really isn't bound to happen? You know, is time going to take care of this problem on its own? And we see that as much as things seem worse, they are much better. And things continue to get much, much better. And it's frustrating when you feel like you've made progress and then and then that gets repealed. But I don't get the sense that a lot of the progress that we've made, even the stuff that's been canceled or pulled back, is gone forever. That that's a dead deal and that the science has been settled on those issues. So it seems to be that it's more about pace. and And so... I think progress is inevitable, whether that's entirely good or not um, in all cases. Sometimes maybe we go too fast and we, we break a few too many eggs. Sometimes we go too slowly and sometimes we just go in the wrong direction entirely. But it seems that over time, things continuously move in the right direction. The question now is we're running out of runway. And so when you have a, a time constraint and a time specifically limit. Specifically, the amount of carbon in the atmosphere is the runway. I think that's, yeah. I, that's probably that's the biggest mind, one. Yeah. There's probably a few other sociopolitical yeah. issues. I mean, things like income inequality really concern me and, and institutional corruption in countries. And you know. Because you can't make change without there being a non-corrupt environment and some sort of equality. A hundred percent. How yeah. do you solve any problem if you yeah. can't trust authorities and you can't trust you know, the, the financial systems and... and you know, have some faith in, in currencies and things like that. I mean, I think that's critically important and, and that's undermined. And then on the income inequality side, I mean, I started this by saying that, that my interest in sustainability, frankly, is sort of came from this place of privilege that I could sort of spend time thinking about big things that just didn't seem right in the world. And we know that when people are challenged financially, immediate concerns trump all things and, and people are going to move towards self-interest when they feel like, you know, they are really losing out. And I think that, that, you know, that anger, that frustration, that desire to just blow everything up is a real problem. What about you personally? Are you optimistic? Do you have hope for the future? What gives you hope when things look so dark in the future, when, when you think of carbon or even inequality? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I guess that... You can't do the kind of work that we do if you're not optimistic. I mean, this is literally what we do every day when you get up. Now, you know, maybe that's sort of denialism, but what else are you going to do? I mean, if the alternative is to sit on your hands and watch everything burn, I mean, that seems kind of pointless to me. So, I mean, if there's a fighting chance, then then I want to be at the table. And so by default, you know, if you're going to be fighting for something, then I think you better at least have some faith that, that you've got a shot at winning. And, and it's not always there. And like everybody, I worry about my kids and I worry about, you know, just what kind of world that they'll be dealing with. And how do I teach them survivalist skills without scaring the pants out of them at like this young age? But, at at you know, the same time, communitarian <laughs> skills. You know, but I need some, you know, I need them to have some good life skills that, that I didn't, never picked up. I mean, my skills with PowerPoint are not going to translate well to a post-apocalyptic society. So I've got to figure out how to teach a four-year-old how to weld, but make it sound like a fun activity. <laughs> <laughs> so 
what advice would you offer to listeners and your kids for that matter about what they can do to be part of making a difference in meeting the challenges that we face? I think there's a bunch of things. I mean, I think there are lots of little easy things that you should do. And I think we should all be doing those little easy things. And, and some of those maybe most important things are about just changing some of your expectations and, and, and what you value. And I think the sort of mantra of less is more, I think is important. Focus on people, focus on experiences, focus on ideas more than stuff. And that's obviously pretty hard to do in culture. But I think we're all getting used to living in smaller houses and living in the city and sharing things, whether it's cars or tools or other things that we don't need to own everything. And I think those are easy things that we can do. On the other hand, one thing that I, that frustrates me and I hope people don't get obsessive about personal choices that they could always do better and they start getting anxiety that they're not doing everything perfectly, whether it's, you know, not recycling everything right. Or, you know, that one time they forgot to turn on the light bulbs because I know people like that who have built up such anxiety that their own personal footprint is contributing to this problem. When, when the reality is that they're probably doing more than their fair share if they're already at that point. And that those little decisions, while they add up to a lot are almost impossible to get out of the system. I mean, getting people to fundamentally change their behavior, you know, think about all the people that don't care at all, like getting them to do anything is challenging. Getting them to radically change their life is basically impossible. So if our solution to climate change is entirely based on getting people to change their values and change their behaviors and not addressing the underlying systemic things, then I think we're wasting our time and we're never going to get anywhere. So do the small things that are easy and make sense if there are things you are passionate about that take you farther, pursue those. But then if you're going to spend the rest of your time stressing about little things, I'd much rather see people getting politically active, starting to focus on, you know, what are those underlying systemic things that, that make it so that the default behavior is sustainable, not something that you consciously have to choose to do, one where you are sacrificing something that other people are not sacrificing to, to be better you know, that you're not a martyr for sustainability because I don't, I don't think that's going to get us there. And I think in some ways it's a distraction and it's a way for entrenched institutional interests to not have to do the hard work because they push it back. Well, if people just use the system right, then this wouldn't be a problem. Well, we've been doing this for 30 years and people still can't figure it out. So there's a point at which if people aren't using your thing properly, it's not them, it's you. And we need to redesign those, those things so that people don't need an advanced degree and training to figure out how they work. And they just, they just do what's better. That's very good advice. Finally, I'd like to ask you three rapid fire questions to wrap up our interview. First question is what books related to these issues do you most often recommend or gift to other people? What's a book? Um, <laughs> or, or, or podcasts, or that. let's take that back. Let's take that back. Uh, <laughs> or, or audibles. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I, I'll cite a couple books that I think are pretty foundational to me. One of the first books I read that was very influential was the book Heat by George Mompiot. Oh, it's, that it's was a the good book I give to everyone. You know, just to understand in terms the world. of breaking my view on tra oh, yeah. like travel and, and just sort of the, the idea that these entitled environmentalists, you know, are flying, are, are, are flying all over the world. By the way, that's why I started doing this 
podcast is because I figured it was a better way to reach people than going to a conference like halfway around the world and talking to like 50 people or even a thousand people. Like it's just like, what am I doing? This is stupid. And I I love traveling, but I now get really conflicted about like, you know, it's a huge challenge. You have to buy offsets. Um, Uh, the book Perverse Cities by Pamela Blaze, yes, I think is a really good read if you want to get into just how dumb our economic models are around cities. A nice pun title too. Yeah. Um, by the way, Heat was the book that turned me into an activist. Oh, At the very last page, yeah. he says, this book will have been a total failure if you just read it. And don't do something. Mm. Whatever it is, figure it out. Do something. You have to do something. I was like, hmm, yeah, okay. What's that going to be? What's that going to look like? Totally. Um, and then I would say, um, "Anti Fragile" by Talib, you know, is another book that just breaks some of these models. That starts to get into really understanding risk and risk thinking around these really complex issues. I mean, other books like "The Black Swan" Black, as well. His earlier one, "Black Swan." Yeah. Um, I think those are really good books to read. I mean, I also say like I seldom go a week without telling somebody that they should be reading Strong Towns. You know, every municipality, if you work in cities, it's just a group. I think they think about things a little bit differently and, you know, they do it without a lot of pretension, which I think is really refreshing. And I'll put all these books and authors on on the show notes. Second question, if you had the power to implement one change, one innovation, or one policy in cities around the world that would have the effect of significantly reducing CO2 emissions and or helping cities adapt to climate change, what would it be and why? King know. for a day. I don't know if I, I, I have a problem with reductionism and sort of saying what's one of the mo- one most you important say thing. <laughs> I'm going to ask you. You anyway. probably sat through, through this rhetoric because the, the reality is that I think it's the inverse. I don't think there's ever one thing that will change everything. There are a bunch of things that have to happen simultaneously in support of one another. And, and the inverse is the failure to do one of them can stop transformation from happening. So that's always sort of something I want to get out there. If I said the 10 basis. things, you'd be like, uh, <laughs> do we have another hour? But, but I will, I'll, <laughs> I'll maybe say not a policy, but a principle that I would like to see imbued is very much that the human should be at the center of the decisions that we make. And that, that goes down to really thinking about everything first from that human perspective, about thinking about cities first from a human scale. And that if you have to choose between two things, you're putting the person first, you know, whether that's modes of transportation that we're supporting when we're building our cities, you know, if not trying to accommodate cars and people equally, but putting, you know, the largest number of people first and foremost in those decisions. And if we could bake that humanity um, into everything that we do from a policy perspective, I think we would end up with much better decision-making. Yeah, that works. I think that's one really good thing. Um, third question. If you could publish a full page spread in the Sunday New York Times or the Globe and Mail for that matter, of anything you wanted, written or graphic, what would it be? I guess if I, if I were to see something and, and maybe take this from the lens of a reader as opposed to a, a publisher, but... But if I were a reader and I were looking at the New York Times, you know, the thing I would want to see, I'd want to see the sustainable city. I'd want to see the human-centered city. 
And I want to see how it works and what it really is and how it pays for itself and what the benefits are and really experience that because I feel in a North American context and sort of taking this future city and really breaking it down and providing a, that sort of personal lens to it. Um, because I think that's what, you know, is probably the most important thing for us to drive cultural change is having stories. And we start to shape our reality around stories. And I think that the science fiction cities that we saw in the early 20th century of these large elevated roadways and monorails going around and these Zeppelins. cold towers, you know, in isolation and things. I think they look really cool. And we've started to build those. And I think what we need to start developing either by going places and experiencing it or, or really creatively, you know, conceptually designing these places is examples that people can really cling to so that they kind of know what might be possible in a way that convinces them that, yeah, this is what I want. You know, and that's, you know, I would love to see that. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really interesting idea. There's a, there's a movement right now to get away from the um, presentation of the challenges of climate change as a bunch of graphs and facts into stories about what a, a positive future could look like. So instead of, here's the problems we have, here's some of the things we might want to do with our future and giving people something to, yeah. to hold on to. And a lot of the conceptual sort of utopian sustainable cities you see are these very sort of far removed renderings of, you know, buildings with trees growing off them and, but haven't addressed the important things. Like what does the, what does the sidewalk feel like and how far do I have to walk to pick up milk? And, you know, am I conversing with people, you know, my neighbors, am I meeting people and interacting with people in engaging ways? Am I happy? And, and so getting it down to that, that level of detail, I think is, is really important. That's cool. A closing question. Is there anything you would like to ask of our listeners? I think one thing that, you know, always makes me curious when I'm speaking to people um, again, maybe this comes down back down to what's the most important thing to do and the idea that there is no most important thing to do. The question I'm always curious about is what are you really passionate about and, and where does that fit into the big picture? I think those are sort of the two most important things is, you know, where can you put your energy? Where do you want to put your energy? You know, and making sure that that also is sort of working with the larger group, you know, it's really starting, you know, like what, what is it that you actually want to do? What role do you want to have to play in this? And what, you know, what can you bring to the table? Because I think that's, we need everybody and we need everybody doing a piece of this and pushing in the same direction. And so that would sort of be my question for people. If you want to be part of this movement, you know, what do you, what do you bring into the table and what's going to get you up every day and get you at the door and, and being part of the solution? That's a nice note to close on. Where can listeners find you on social media if they want to connect? Yeah, we are online. Um, so Canada Green Building Council is cagbc.org. Uh, you can follow me personally on Twitter. It's Jeff Ranson. I'm on LinkedIn. And CAGBC Greater Toronto Chapter. We're on LinkedIn. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Just head to our website and you can find us. I'll get all those links down on the show notes. Thanks very much, Jeff. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Craig. You can find links.
links to more information about this podcast and to notes about the books and references we've discussed at tfcipodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, please let us know by rating it on the Apple iTunes podcast website and by sponsoring the podcast on our Patreon sponsor page at patreon.com forward slash TFCI podcast. This podcast is ad free and relies entirely on listener support from people like you. So if you find our podcast interesting and valuable, please consider becoming a patron. Your sponsorship will not only help us cover the cost of production, but we will also be spending 50 cents of every sponsorship dollar to plant trees. To do this, we have formed a partnership with Community Forest International, who will not only be planting seedlings for you, but taking care of them to make sure they continue to grow and absorb carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So please head over to the Patreon page and become a sponsor. Until next time, thanks for listening. (laughs) 